and welcome to our podcast from Sunday to Monday. Last night I spoke at a seminar on the subject of anxiety. I talked a little bit about the symptoms of anxiety so that we could have a better understanding of what those who suffer with anxiety syndrome experience and what it feels like. The purpose of the seminar is not for me to uh, heal or try to fix anything, but really to uh, just to broaden people's understanding. You know, I want people to understand good friends of theirs, mature Christians that they love dearly, uh, have struggles that they would have never thought. Uh, I want you to understand what it's like for them, and most importantly, I want you to know Uh, how you can best love them and and care for them. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening to this seminar. At the end, I took some questions. I will interpret those questions uh, so you you can hear them and then give you my answers as well. As always, if you have any questions, please let me know by emailing them to info at riveroakstulsa.com. Thank you. All right, let's pray, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being with us, our uh, security and our peace. And I pray that you would help us now as we turn to this topic of anxiety. I pray that you would uh, give us understanding and uh, more courage, less fear of the unknown, more of a willingness to show love to our dear friends who need it. I pray that you would embolden our friends who suffer with it and they would know that we love them and uh, as much as you would, I pray, Lord, that you would free them uh, from their fears. In Jesus' name, amen. Anxiety is the topic for tonight, so what we're going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Um, Just the, the, the primary reason why I talk about things is not because I'm an expert. I'm not, neither Uh, as a sufferer nor as a uh, friend or someone who's in relationship necessarily, I mean, as a spouse, uh, I'm a friend. But uh, it's just to kind of create an atmosphere of it's okay to talk about this, you know. I think it's important for us to acknowledge the existence of things. So tonight we're acknowledging the existence of of anxiety disorder. It said disorder is growing. Uh, so, uh, supposedly right now, 19% of adults struggle with anxiety disorder. And that number may be uh, going up. I think it's going up. Uh, I think we're to somewhat, uh, we are creating it as a culture. Our schools are, are creating it. Kind of the way that's happening is uh, in, in the younger and in, in the people in their 20s and, and, and less, what we're seeing is this. Every, you know, there's a constant pendulum swinging, right? So there's constant pendulum swinging back and forth in culture and just in life. And when I was in school, the the pendulum was kind of out there where school was kind of too easy. Honestly, high school was a joke. Like I had two hard classes. I was, I really went to school for extracurriculars, right? And so I did all the, the hard learning in college. But when I got to college, I had no idea how to study. I'd never had a hard class in my life. And so we all, all us 80s uh, ex-generation kids grew up and said, no, when we send our kids to school, it's going to be hard. And so we, we, we just geared it up. I mean, the stuff that my kids are learning in public high school right now is stuff that I did not learn until college and, and never got. Like, I never really understood it. They're already doing calculus at a level that I never was able to handle. And yet, we haven't geared down anything else. 
right? And so now our kids are having hours and hours of very strenuous work, but we're also still expecting them to be the captain of the football team and do cheerleading and do all the extracurriculars that we did and have all the social pressures of, you know, proms and dating. And it's really just um, creating quite a vice for our kids. They, uh, I saw one study, you never know what to trust or not, but it's an interesting thought, that said that the, uh, the, typical high, the typical high school student in uh, today's culture experiences as much anxiety as a, a state penitentiary prisoner did in the 70s. Uh, life is just that, that, that full of stress. I don't know if that's true or not, but it does seem to be that anxiety is something on the rise. I uh, started dealing, seeing panic attacks in my last couple of years as a campus minister, and uh, it's, it's really gotten to be just kind of an everyday occurrence. So I want to give you, what I'm going to go through is kind of 12 signs, uh, and this is just to help you understand I'm not trying to give you a test to see if you are struggling with anxiety. I just want you to understand kind of what someone with anxiety suffers with. And then I'm going to do six things to tell a friend who's going through uh, anxiety and um, how, to, how to help them. And then I'm going to take questions for a few minutes, and then we're going to have a couple of people give their testimonies of what life is like uh, with anxiety. I thought Joe was going to be here. Is Joe here? I don't see him. Okay. There was a huge miscommunication about whether we were meeting tonight or not. I thought it was clear, but the city was wrong, so obviously I wasn't as clear as I thought. So I don't know who's, but it's all right. We'll have a couple of uh, testimonies, and then we'll stay and answer questions as long as you want to. Okay. So here are the 12 signs of uh, adult uh, anxiety disorder. First one is excessive worry. Now, everybody worries, but... uh, it becomes a disorder when worry is something that you can't turn off, when it's something that is it's so bad, it's so strong, that it interferes with normal life. Uh, doctors also kind of start to pay attention to it when it is accompanied with physical symptoms, uh, sweating, pulse, indigestion. Uh, we'll talk about some of these physical symptoms in a minute, in a few moments. Uh, and especially when it is when it is, uh, taking place for most days of the week, for a, over a six-month period. That's, that's kind of when you're in a, a diagnose, diagnosis uh, you know, zone. Now, what is so frustrating for people who suffer with anxiety is they know there's nothing to worry about, and it doesn't help. And so what's the thing that, you know, if you're kind of trying to step along beside them and you're trying to say trying to make them feel better, what do you want to say? There's nothing to worry about. I know. <laughs> if I could not worry, I would stop. And so, um, it, it kind of, and then they begin to think, well, there must be something wrong with me if I can't stop. And it becomes a really ugly spiral. Now, we've all kind of been in those situations. You know, you've gone to bed at night with someone mad at you. And you can't stop thinking about them. You've gotten in a fight late at night. You have a test tomorrow that you don't think you're going to be able to pass. You forgot to turn in. You know, we've all had those nights of of sleeplessness, right? When we just were stressed out. Now, imagine that happening four or more days a week for six months. You know, imagine that becoming your normal. That is when you're in the the zone of anxiety. And that is... uh, 
Uh, honestly, it's kind of a terrible thought, isn't it? Second symptom is uh, sleep problems. Sleep problems come from the inability to stop worrying. Um, honestly, most of America right now suffers with sleep problems, so this is not even a helpful <laughs> symptom because we just we don't sleep well. Except me. I figured that one out. But uh, I don't know why, but last year I figured out how to sleep. Uh, also, someone who suffers, suffers with anxiety wakes up feeling wired. Like the second their alarm clock goes off, they're already feeling behind. That, that there's, there's no sense of being able to calm themselves down. Um, a third sign of, of anxiety disorder is living with uh, irrational fears. Now, sometimes these are called phobias. But again, these are fears that you know, you, you know they're unlikely, and yet they, they prevent you from functioning normally. Right? So... Uh, may, and it may even be a fear that you don't, it could be something as simple as uh, fear of snakes, but it's more than just a normal fear of snakes, like you're terrified of them. But since you live in, you know, the suburbs, you don't think about it that often, and then your kid signs up to go to camp and you freak out. Or, uh, and sometimes they're, they're rational fears, but they're, well, I guess the fear of snakes could be called rational, though you're more likely to get struck by lightning than die from a snake bite. Uh, much, much more likely, so be afraid of lightning. Um, but uh, even like a rational fear that, that, that it just is overwhelming is a sign of anxiety. So uh, if you say you have a, ration, a very rational, understandable fear of your ch- children being uh, abused or mistreated, that's understandable. But if all of a sudden it becomes like a paralyzing fear, like you cannot, you know, the, the thought of sending a child to a camp becomes something that you just can't make yourself do. And that, that's, that's in that room of anxiety. A uh, fourth symptom is muscle, muscle tension. People who struggle with anxiety will constantly be twitching. They'll be uh, squeezing, making fists. There, a lot of times they'll, they'll suffer from neck and back aches, from the inability to ever relax. Some, a lot of times, uh, uh, another symptom is uh, grinding their teeth or uh, headaches from, from always clenching their jaws. A lot of people who struggle with anxiety are, are deal with it by exercise, and they don't even notice the, the anxiety is not debilitating until they are unable to exercise, and uh, that, that completely throws them off. So muscle tension is, is again, again, these are all things that we suffer with, that everybody suffers with occasionally, but this is a part of the normal life for somebody with anxiety disorder. Uh, a fifth symptom that's very common is chronic indigestion, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, stomach cramping, uh, bloating, gas. And of course, again, with irritable bowel syndrome, it becomes a spiral because it gives you anxiety. And, uh, and it's a result of anxiety, and it makes it very hard to go out in social settings. It makes it very hard to uh, do... If there's anything that... that that someone who's, who's not struggling with this disorder would be a little bit worried about, it becomes an enormous deal for someone with anxiety because then again, right, you're, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about this job interview and that gets your stomach to rumbling and then you have something else to worry about and it becomes, uh, again, a, a spiral that, that sucks you down into it. A sixth a common symptom is social anxiety. Uh, 
it can it can take a lot of different forms. People who suffer with anxiety will be uh, unable to have people come to their house, or if there are people coming to their house for what's you know just kind of a normal gathering, a community group, or something like that. It it takes like all week to prepare for it. You you can't stop thinking about it. Um, you, you continue to think about it afterwards. You're constantly kind of replaying everything that went on. How is that? This is, is something we'll, you'll see in the next couple of, of examples. But this, uh, this inability to stop examining how everything went. Um, you know, how, how did, why did so-and-so say that? Why didn't, uh, why did no one eat the broccoli? Did I prepare it wrong, you know? Uh, no, nobody eats broccoli. The reason why they didn't eat the broccoli is because there was something else to eat. Um, but someone with social anxiety doesn't notice that. And they continue thinking about it afterwards. The inability, it, it, again, you know, think of it as, as, I hate to use the word normal, but I can't think of another one. So, like these, you know, sm- regular things that everybody would get a little bit worked up about, right? You have a, a, an event at your house. If you're not used to doing that, you're, you're probably going to start preparing for it a couple, maybe a day early, a couple hours early. <clears throat> and once everybody leaves, you clean up, kind of sit around and think about it for five minutes, I don't know, an hour maybe, watch a little TV, go to bed, it's over. Well, you know, for someone who suffers with anxiety disorder, it's, it, it, that's expanded by 10 times. You know, people are they're, they're kind of thinking about it days in advance and replaying it in their minds for days after it's over. So that's, that's uh, social anxiety. It can take all, all kinds of terms of uh, uh, examples. Makes things like school extremely hard to finish. Sporting events uh, become extremely hard. Um, David has told me about uh, even how it, it, it affects people's uh, abilities. Um, David's told me about guys who kind of can't force their bodies to function or, or stop breathing in the, on the football field, think they have asthma. What they really do is they have is anxiety. They don't want to play, but they don't want to disappoint their parents. And it's this, this anxiety becomes crippling. Self-consciousness, seventh symptom. Again, everybody's a little bit self-conscious, right? We want you to be self-conscious. If you want to see people who are not at all self-conscious, look at fifth grade boys, you know. Nobody's hair is combed, nobody's fly zipped. Everybody's fingers in their nose. Like, we don't want you to go around like that. So a little bit of self-consciousness is a good thing. But for someone with social anxiety, it is a constant feeling that every eye is always on them. Uh, This constant kind of terror. Everybody is always looking at them. And if they're in uh, social settings, uh, it can be accompanied with trembling, nausea, sweatiness, uh, and, and many cases, in some cases I've seen uh, very up close, just the, the utter inability to talk. Um, for some people, they just, they lose the ability to verbalize anything. I've seen people, um, young people even, just completely unable to talk to a waiter or waitress when they come to the table. Uh, just the, it's like they... Uh, one friend of mine describes it as he just loses his voice. He just can't. He tries. You know, he, he knows what he, he's like, was thinking about it. He knew what he wanted, but then he just couldn't do it. And again, that's the, the inability to control that, the knowledge that this is a normal function, that all that makes it worse.
because you can't control it. Panic attacks are, are a physical thing. A panic attack is an adrenaline dump. Uh, your, your entire body goes into fight or flight mode. It is a very real thing. It's uh, a gripping feeling of fear and hopelessness. Uh, you experience shortness of breath, a racing heart. Some people experience a numb hands and sweating, a weakness or dizziness. It's a physical thing. Um, if you understand that, that makes it easier to, to push through. Uh, basically, the key to a, pa- a panic attack is like Chinese handcuffs. You know, you, the way you get out of it is quit trying. Uh, you know, you don't want to try these handcuffs or all those little paper things you put on your fingers and the fur- harder you pull them apart, the further, the tighter they grip you. So you should just push in and you can slip out of them. It's the same with the panic attack. If you struggle to make it end, you will make it last all day. If you try to shut it down, you will just, you'll make it last all day. And so the only way to really deal with it is to submit to it, to just let it happen and uh, let the adrenaline flush through your system and they, they can they can last as little as 15 minutes but honestly in my experience the only people who are able to make them last 15 minutes are people who are very experienced having them you know it's like okay i need 15 minutes come hold my hand and you can do that usually it takes a little longer than that a ninth symptom is flashbacks and, and people differ whether a post-traumatic stress disorder is a form of anxiety disorder or if it's a completely different thing. And I'm sure to some people that really matters, but for the sake of this class, nobody's getting a degree here. We're going to call it basically lump them together. Um, And again, that's the inability to not dwell on something. And these flashbacks will be extremely vivid, like, like you're reliving it. I had a lunch with a, a young fellow a few weeks ago, and um, he, he was in Afghanistan, saw some very terrible things, and every October he has flashbacks. When the weather is like it was on the day when he experienced what he experienced, you know, the weather just sets him off. And um, there's nothing he can do. Some people be like, you know, some people, again, trying to be well-meaning will say things like, well, avoid your triggers. Really, you want me to avoid October? What is, give me your plan for avoiding a month, you know. Um, you can't do that. And so, um, you know, knowing that it's coming doesn't really help, but it, you know, help, experience lets you know that it will at least pass. Um, and someone who struggles with anxiety disorder will oftentimes have flashbacks to things that, Again, people who don't struggle with anxiety wouldn't necessarily see them as being traumatic. But uh, it could be something like uh, being publicly ridiculed. Um, for someone with anxiety disorder, that they, could, they could be taken back to that moment and re-experience it. And with all the, the vividness and the, and the tears um, that accompany the very first experience, they could, they could you know, experience it again like that. Um, so that, that's another example. A, a completely different type of anxiety is perfectionism. Uh, the constantly judging of yourself, uh, anticipating mistakes, constantly falling short of standards, 
Um, this, this desire to get every, everything has to be exactly right. Uh, sometimes that can take the form of, of uh, obsessive, what we call obsessive compulsive disorder, where uh, you can't, you just can't let something go until it's exactly right. And this is an extremely highly functioning people. Um, you know, it, it, I, I saw it, I, one of my best friends was like this in college. He could not turn in an assignment until it was exactly right. So he just shut down. He would just shut down until he could get it right. Um, you'll see it in children sometimes who will cry if, if their shoestrings don't, you know, you tie their shoes and if their bows don't lay down exactly the same way, it kind of freaks them out. Um, there was a, a basketball player named Chris Jackson went to LSU, uh, extremely high functioning. You think like, how can you have anxiety when, you know, he can function with 20,000 people screaming at him, but he would stay in the gym shooting basketball for hours unable to stop until he could make the net make the right sound. Like when, the, when the ball went through the hoop, if the net didn't make the right sound, he couldn't stop. It's just, just that, I mean, and it's an inability. Like, he knew that was weird, you know? It's like, you didn't need somebody to go, that's odd. He's like, I know, but I can't. I, you know, he just can't turn it off in his brain. That leads to compulsive behavior, a need, a need to complete certain rituals. And the need to, to complete those rituals begins to drive your life. As simple as washing your hands or putting on your makeup, but it often, it, but it can in its most extreme settings become, um, you know, where you can't leave the house until your makeup is just right, even if it takes hours. Uh, another friend of mine, his wife suffered with this. And, and these compulsive fears would just come up. She uh, was known to at least a, a couple of times have gone to the grocery store and was unable to put the groceries in the car. She just couldn't. She was just convinced that the groceries had been con- contaminated. And they, you know, and, and she would just drive home, and he would find her home crying, and she'd say, "What's, what's, you know?" He'd say, "What's wrong? I left the groceries in the parking lot again. I could not put them in the car. Uh, just an inability." to do that. Uh, a final a symptom and something I've seen in almost everybody um, that I have experienced or worked with who suffers with uh, anxiety, and that is self-doubt and a continual second guessing. If you want to know who in your life has anxiety, just ask yourself, who are the people who are constantly apologizing to you? Uh, that constant second-guessing, that inability to stop replaying something in their minds, uh, the inability to stop asking themselves. It, it, it becomes obsessive, really. So on, on one level, it's, you know, you know, when you have a, a run-in socially, a, a conversation that was really important, an interview, a, a scholarship interview or a college interview, you know how you, you'll, you'll play that in your mind a thousand times. You can't stop thinking about it. If only I had said this, I would have gotten into the school, you know. Well, someone with social anxiety kind of uh, does that with every conversation. And, um, and, and it really, you know, exaggerates everybody else's facial expressions and expressions. And, and you know, you know what normal, everyday conversations are like? Like, what, 60% of the time you're not even listening to the person who's talking to you? You know, your facial expressions has nothing to do with the person who's talking to you. You're thinking about something else. Let's just be honest here. But with someone with social anxiety, it becomes like this real terror. Like, why, why do they do that? You know? And, uh, and an inability to just say, 
everything's fine. Uh, it, it can also take on this self-doubt can lead to all kinds of issues. I, I see it as a pastor. I see it when it, the self-doubt is a constant reassessing of yourself, okay? So you'll, you'll lay in bed at night constantly asking, do I do X, Y, or Z enough? And when that settles on a question that can't be answered, it becomes a real slavery. So what counselors will see a lot is someone who's asking themselves the question, you know, am I gay? Maybe I'm gay. And they can't, they, they can't answer that question. You know, there's not like a blood test you can take or something. And so they, they obsess on it. The question I get, you know, is, as a pastor is kind of an assurance of salvation type question. Am I really saved? You know, and, and, the, and the answer the typical evangelical gives is, well, if you're sincere, then yes. You know, if you sincerely believe on Christ, then yes. And that question is never, that answer is never good because it's like, well, was I sincere enough? You know, am I ever, and you, and you really just see people get into this torment of, of self-doubt and fear and second-guessing and, and just the inability to stop asking that question. Um, you know, do I really love this, this person I'm married to? Uh, you know, those kind of questions that are, again, unanswerable. There's not like a, here's a math equation, go figure it out. And, and they will obsess on it with the inability to stop thinking about it. And so those are all symptoms of people who suffer with um, anxiety disorder. And I'm going to give you uh, six things to say or do with people who are, uh, when they're struggling through that. And then, um, and then I'm going to give you a chance to ask questions. So first thing to say to somebody who's suffering with anxiety is, this is going to end. Okay, again, you're dealing with someone who... For the, if they're in a full-fledged anxiety attack, they've kind of lost the ability to think rationally. And sometimes you, sometimes you can think rationally with them for a moment, and sometimes you can do it for them, and sometimes you can't. But uh, when people are having the attack say this, whenever, this is a quote, whenever I have an attack, I go into the mindset that this will never end. During an attack, a second feels like an hour. You feel like you're going to die because your body's on overdrive trying to figure out what's wrong and how to fix it. If you can just come along and say, this feeling is lying to you. You feel like this is going to last forever. It's not. This is going to end. This is going to end. That, that can be very helpful. A second thing is uh, to remind somebody that they can get, they can get through it. Uh, this feeling of hopelessness is, is never ending. Uh, another person says, I've, I've never felt strong enough to survive an attack without becoming depressed or even sicker. And so just telling somebody that you believe in them, it goes a long way. Telling the person that, uh, that you know they're strong enough to get through it. And if they know that someone else is there for them, that can be the, the, that strength they need to get through it. Just we're trying to fight off this sense of helplessness, of, of hopelessness, of this never-ending hopelessness. And, and anything you can do to remind them, I'm going to be here with you. You're going to get through this. It's going to be better is extremely helpful. A third thing to say is reminder to breathe. Um, it, it just be very practical. 
Uh, once, you know, uh, Isabel gave this to me, and she says, you know, when she's going through an attack, she needs to have uh, two hands on something and two feet on the ground, just kind of gra- literally grounding herself. Uh, breathing exercises, do the, doing breathing exercises with someone, uh, especially if it's your spouse or your child, I highly recommend that. Uh, get them into the moment, just into that moment kind of bring their thoughts down into something that's manageable so they can think and breathe and be alive, um, kind of gets you, gets them grounded. Uh, a fourth thing, que- question to ask is, do you need anything? Uh, sometimes people want, uh, a lot of times they're unable to do anything for themselves. Uh, and, and generally, and this is really the one piece of wisdom I want you to take away from this, let the person who is struggling with anxiety tell you what they need. If you want to make it worse, tell them what they need. <laughs> you know, you just need to run. You just need to sleep better. Oh, thank you. That's helpful. Let them tell you what they need. Um, and don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, sometimes people be anxi- in anxiety and, you know, there's always two ways to ask a question. Sometimes they need to take their medicine and they can't. And so it's okay to say, um, can I get your medicine for you? Do, you? do you need me to get you a glass of water? Do you need me to get your medicine? Do you need me to get you something to eat? Now, you don't want to say that in a pejorative way, right? You don't want to say, have you taken your happy pills? You know, anything stupid like that. But you want to uh, offer them any, you know, offer them things. It's more than a kind gesture. Um, when people can't control their own bodies, it's extremely encouraging for them to know that there's people there who will help them. And finally, offer someone a hand to hold or, or a hug. My favorite story, I've read a lot. People have been sending me articles. And uh, the, my favorite story I've read over anxiety and depression was, is, was written by a, uh, a musician. And he was expressed all the stuff he was going through with a good friend. And his friend told him, he said, and his friend was very wise. His friend said, you know, I know there's nothing I can say that's going to make you feel better. I don't know what you're going through. I'm not going to say, oh, I get it. You know, I'm not going to say any of those dumb things. So his friend said this, said, I'm going to, I want you to stand up. I'm going to hug you for two minutes. That's going to feel weird. And, uh, you know, by the end of of two minutes, his friend, the guy was just bawling on his shoulder but it was very therapeutic and healing. This, this very physical uh, expression that I'm with you. And again, when someone's going through anxiety, um, if you remember what we talked about the first week, there's kind of three levels to your thinking. There's three, literally, physically, there's three levels to your brain. There's the you know, heartbeat, breathe, digest food, animal level of your brain. There's the emotional, relational part of your brain. And then there's the rational part of your brain. And if you're not, if the first two aren't functioning, the third one's useless to you. And so what this person's doing when they're giving the hug is they're just going straight at the second level and getting to it through the physical. Um, let me show you physically that I love you, that I'm here. And, and communicating on that kind of level. I, I grew by, by miles as a campus minister when I started holding people's hand through their anxiety attacks instead of trying to talk them through them. Just, I'm right here, and I'm not going anywhere, and then just shutting up. Um, 
So that's, that's been my experience. Um, and that's what I would encourage you, encourage you to, to, to strive to, to be, be that physical, concrete person who is there. And again, just to go back to my major point of the night, ask the person how you can help. Ask. Let them tell you what they need. People who are struggling with debilitating depression might need you to do a load of laundry or take their children for the afternoon, uh, you know, cooking meals and, and, and just doing things like that. It, it's more than just an offer. It's really a lifeline. It lets people know that there's, there's concrete help here. So don't be afraid to make offers uh, and, and ask them what you can do for them. I'm not sure who this is. This is from a book called um, Darkness is My Closest Friend, um, Facing Mental Illness. And Jonathan didn't give me the author, but she said this. She says, uh, when I was in depression, I could not imagine that anybody would really love me, would want to be there for me, uh, still find me worthy of friendship and love. Truly darkness seemed to be my only companion. Of this, I was quite convinced. One very important way to help your friends who suffer with mental illness is to pray for them. The assurance that people were praying for me, since I had so much trouble praying for myself, was a healing balm. My true friends during this time were the ones I knew were praying for me. So, that's just some suggestions. Um, what, what does that kind of bring to your mind is questions. The first question was, do you think anxiety is primarily physical or mental? Should it be treated with medication or with therapy? The, you know, the answer to that is complex and it's different according to the person, but it's always going to involve both. Thinking is always going to affect your body and your body is always going to affect your thinking. And so, uh, you know, some people are just born uh, genetically predisposed to anxiety. Some people are parented into anxiety from a very early age. <laughs> Um, and some people experience trauma that throws them into it. Um, but all of them, at least when they're in the, you know, in the worst parts of the anxiety attacks, all of them would have the same um, shortages of serotonin in their brain, inability to, up, to, to take it up um, at the right rates. And all of them, to some degree or another, well, I won't say all, a lot, pretty much everybody I know who's tried, has, will respond to medicine at some degree. Now, whether that needs to be a permanent or a temporary thing is, is something that needs to be discussed with your physician. Um, but if, and, and you know, I've, I've walked through with several friends who've tried to, t- to stop taking it, and that's great. Some can, some can't. Uh, there's different reasons for trying to stop taking your anti-anxiety uh, medication, some anti-anxiety. Some anti-anxiety medications make you gain weight, and people hate that, and so they want to stop taking it. And there's other reasons. It's complex. It's, it's messing with your chemistry. But you just got to do it in the. You need to do it in a relationship with a physician and with an openness to your friends, because some people are able to wean themselves off of it, and some people aren't. And it's very dangerous to play with it. So I'm probably I'm kind of answering more than just your specific question, but trying to answer around it as well. You know, I'm not trying to prescribe anybody, but I think what I'm trying to do is take away stigma 
so that people feel comfortable talking about it both with their friends and with their physician. How, and, and some people need therapy and some people need exercise and some people need medication and some people need two of those three or three of those three. And I, I'm not going to tell you what you need. The second question was about the relationship between depression and anxiety. I honestly have seen more people struggle, and, and William will answer this as he's, he's closer to being an expert on this. And you're going to talk about that as part of your thing? You can, you might, whatever. Um, I think more, all right, purely me, I think more people suffer with anxiety than depression. And I think they confuse, I think depression presents itself first. So, for instance, Isabel went to the doctor for depression. And once she got in there, she was diagnosed with anxiety. Well, you know, to even, you know, doofus like me, I'm like, well, yeah, you have anxiety. That's seemed, I, I thought you knew that, you know. But she, she, she never, you know, for her being anxious was such the norm that what was shocking to her was her depression. I, I think, honestly, if we could, you know, if you could treat things, because think about the things that anxiety causes, right? Chronic physical symptoms, inability to stop, you know, self-doubt, self-consciousness, um, inability to sleep. I mean, those things are going to make you depressed. So, um, that, again, that's just me. So I don't have any statistics on that. I can't think of a single thing I read that said this or that. But I think more people struggle with anxiety than with depression. I just think they look a lot. Yeah, that's a great question. If y'all didn't hear it, it's how do you go about dealing with someone, loving somebody who exhibits the characteristics of, of anxiety but is anxious about getting help. This is my attempt at that. Bringing, you know, I think we as a Christian community have to do as much as we can to normalize conversations about it. Um, so very literally for you, um, I would say, hey, we just had this seminar. Like, it's, it's normal. Lots of people in my church suffer with this. It's no big deal. It's not a stigma. It's not something to be embarrassed about. You know, my pastor takes anti-anxiety medicine. Yeah, I, that's a great question. It's a very, very real problem. People, you know, there, there's always this kind of fear of getting labeled, right? I mean, and what we want to do is point people to the hope of healing. You can't have one without the other. Well, that seems like a good place to end it to me. We do have hope of healing, but as we have often said, we can't heal something that has gone undiagnosed. Please feel the freedom to come to your pastor or to your friends or both and ask for help uh, so they can walk with you, limp with you toward glory together. I hope you've enjoyed this. As always, please share it with your friends. Please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or whatever podcast store you have found us. And I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next Monday.